Somebody asked uh, John Main once, what is the best way to prepare for meditation? And often we would say, and he, he would say, and we would say a few, a few minutes of silence or a gentle stretching or maybe listening to some music or just to watch your breathing for a few moments. So there are different ways we can physically prepare, mentally prepare for meditation. And, uh, but on this occasion, he said, small acts of kindness, which uh, really is a good introduction to our theme of unity and of being unity. That small, these small acts of kindness that we do for one another without the desire for recognition or reward, that these small acts of kindness uh, predispose us already for the next time that we sit down to meditate. And they do that, I think, because they, in each of these small acts of kindness, we are turning towards the other. We're doing something without looking at the benefit or the reward we're going to get ourselves. And these are small acts, not great heroic, tra tragic self-sacrifices, but small, kind, kindly acts. And in the same way, as, as I was saying last night, when we meditate together, and we'll begin with, now with a, a few minutes of meditation, we'll have a longer... Actually, I don't have a timetable. Anybody? Is there a timetable? Thank you. Just so that I don't keep talking until four o'clock this afternoon. Good. Ah, we don't have, we don't have a meditation. I, I can put it in. Thank you. All right. Because I, I talk less, you get more out of it. Okay, so in the same way, when we take our time of meditation together, whether it's in a small group or in a larger group like this, uh, we are kind to each other by protecting the silence, by respecting the silence. And uh, treating the silence as something really sacred. I think if we are going to be serious about developing a contemplative Christianity to pass on to the next generation, then most of us here, who are not the next generation, most of us here will need to wake up a little bit to the sacred nature of silence in worship. We will need to be able to discover for ourselves and to pass on by example to the next generation uh, why silence is sacred. And one example of that, for example, is you know when you go to church, on a Sunday. How many people go to church on Sunday? No, you don't have, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> so when you go to church on Sunday, okay, when I was, let me put it like this, when I was a boy and we would, you know, it was a family thing, we would go to Mass on Sunday. Because my mother was Irish, we would always be late. And, and as the Mass, it was something we had to do, 
wanted to do, I suppose. We didn't think twice about it at that stage. But um, we, uh, we would also, you know, we didn't want to spend any longer there than we had to. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the 20-minute mass, but it wasn't much, you know, very different from that. But anyway, it was primarily a sense of uh, a, a custom, a habit, and obligation as well, of course. But and it, it wasn't difficult or unpleasant, but it, you know, it was something to be done. Anyway, so uh, I remember we, we used to have discussions sometimes. Um, how late can we be? <laughs> if you, uh, you know, we, you know, could you could you miss the gospel? I think we used to think that you, you could, might miss the gospel, but if you miss the offertory, then probably it would be invalid. Yeah, so. Anyway, it was a sort of a high level of scholastic theology that we were discussing. So, but it didn't, doesn't, from the point of view of the congregation, or the priest, unless the priest was particularly grumpy, uh, it didn't matter, really, if you know, a family walked in late and shuffled up, and made everybody shuffle along the bench. But it's very different in meditation, isn't it? So what happens if you're meditating in a group and after 10 minutes, you know, you've really begun to settle down? It takes some time to settle down, like a, a glass of water. If you get a glass of water in, in some cities, it, you, it's, it's very cloudy and you think it's full of impurities, but in fact it's just whatever it is, chemicals in it, that needs to settle. So in the same way, our minds and our bodies need to take time to settle. It depends how you have prepared for the meditation, how well prepared you are, but if you know, you've been distracted and busy and agitated, and, um, then it's going to take that much more time just for the mind to calm down. And then, so imagine that. So you have this group of people and their minds, uh, they're, they're, they're meditating 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes even into the meditation. And then, you know, the, the door bangs. Somebody walks in and you can hear the, the bags, the, the shoes, and they start looking around for a chair, and usually they want to sit in the front row. Uh, <laughs> so they come down. Or it's even worse if they're trying to walk very quietly like that, because <laughs> they make more, <laughs> more disturbance, and it takes longer. And then they sit down. You think, oh, thank God, they're sitting down now. But then it takes them 10 minutes <laughs> to settle down and unzip the thing. And, and then, oh, no, I don't need this on. I'll take this off. And so that makes a difference. It doesn't make a difference in a, in, in a, in a, a church. Well, it does to some degree, but it doesn't make the same kind of difference. So if we're serious about a contemplative Christianity, we need to, to think about these protocols and these, these sensitivities. And what that means, it's not just here, here are rules, new rules that you have to follow. It's that we're discovering a new dimension of the sacred. And for, for many Christians, you know, going into the church was a sacred, is a sacred place. 
and uh, different ways we, we understand the service or the worship to be, or the communion, if, if we're having communion, to be something sacred. But it's relatively recent that majority of us have, have begun even to think that the silence can be sacred. There is nothing so much like God as silence, as Meister Eckhart says. So, in the same way, the, the, this protection, it's not maybe protection isn't the word, but caring, the caring for the silence in our midst, physically, the real silence, and being, being aware of the, the difference we make, each one of us, although we're part of this unity, uh, sitting in this group, in this place. Nevertheless, each one of us has the power of life and death over everyone else in terms of the silence. So, I say this not, not to make people feel guilty about if they have to make a noise or they sneeze or something, you don't have to say three Hail Marys to, uh, to make up for it. But it's to, be, it's to be aware, to be conscious. And that actually is an act of kindness that we, we um, exercise both for ourselves and for, for others, of course, primarily for others. So I thought we can begin with a, a short period of meditation, and I think, uh, well, I'm sure there are people here who are new to meditation, and uh, I'd like to welcome you. If you're new to the community, then uh, welcome, and I hope you'll get to know the community uh, in the course of the day. Um, so let me refresh your understanding of meditation as a practice, and uh, then we'll take a few moments to meditate together before we launch out into the, into the talks. So meditation is a pilgrimage, an interior pilgrimage we make from the mind to the heart. And the heart is that inner room that Jesus speaks of. In the Upanishads, it also speaks of there being at the, at the deep center of the heart, a tiny space, the smaller than the tip of your thumb. But in that space is the universe. All the, all the galaxies, all the whole cosmos is in that tiny space. But this is the inner room, really, in which Jesus says we encounter the ground of being, the one he calls the Father. So meditation is our simple human journey from our mind to the heart. And we could call meditation, as it has been called in the Eastern tradition, uh, of the church, orthodox tradition, prayer is bringing the mind into the heart. Coming to a unity of mind and heart. Of course, the big problem in that is uh, our minds. Our minds are uh, in an agitated state, sometimes very agitated, sometimes in a very disturbed state, sometimes we're controlled by illusions, sometimes by compulsions, sometimes by addictions. Uh, we tend to have repetitive cycles of thought, which often which are rather negative. We have our fantasies, we have our fears, 
We have our day-to-day -day busy to-do list, some more compulsive than others. So our minds are very busy. The first level of consciousness that we discover when we begin to meditate is that noisy monkey mind with every thought like a little monkey jumping around, uh, chattering and screaming from branch to branch. And at that point, many of us give up. We say, well, this ain't for me. You know, I'm, I don't feel like St. John of the Cross or the, the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. You know, I, this is just not for me. So this is why we need to understand that this is precisely why meditation is for us. It's because we're distracted that we, we need uh, a practice that will allow us to let go of our thoughts, the thoughts that cling sometimes so powerfully to us. We cannot think our way out of the mind. The only way we can begin to let go of our thoughts is to lay them aside. And that's another definition of prayer that comes to us from the Christian tradition uh, of, the, of the desert. And it's from that tradition that John Main uh, recognized and, and, uh, and communicated the teaching on meditation that, that is at the heart of our community and why we're here today. So laying aside your thoughts, that's a very important first principle that even if you've been meditating for 10 years or 20 years, uh, it's a very important principle that we, we need to rediscover continually. I think meditation, sometimes people ask me, uh, is, 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 it, is it an addiction? Maybe they think I'm addicted to it because I talk about it all the time. And uh, the other day I was, I was thinking about this and I decided to look up, and I've always said, no, meditation is not an addiction. In fact, meditation will help you to break your addictions. But I thought, it's not 100% satisfied with that answer. So I did a bit of uh, research on the etymology, the root meaning of the word addiction. And the word addiction uh, carries the sense of giving yourself to something. Which is quite interesting, because it's not in itself negative. So you might be addicted to alcohol, or drugs, or overwork, or sexual addictions, uh, or money, or power. Or, so you could be addicted to all sorts of negative things in negative ways that take away your freedom and that diminish your unity, that breaks you up, fragments you, and makes you feel radically divided against yourself. This is the condition of sin. St. Paul speaks about this in the letter to the Romans when he says, what I want to do, I do not do. What I don't want to do, that is what I end up doing. That's a perfect description of addiction, isn't it? And of, but this is for him is the state of sin, of, but it's an interior personal division, a sort of violence against oneself. So, 
But the word itself, as I say, means to give yourself to something. But actually the human being needs to, to give. We need to give ourselves to something. And this is, I mean, are you addicted to your children? You could become possessive about your children. But is it an addiction to, 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 um, to give yourself to them? I mean, in fact, in effect, you give your life to them. You would give your life for them. And in the same way, a, a good work that you are engaged in, you give yourself to that work. You might stay up late, uh, and you might uh, give up your free time and, because you love this work and you want to give yourself to it. Does that mean you're addicted to it? Or does it mean that actually it becomes a, a vehicle um, by which you can give yourself. So in that sense, you could say meditation is an addiction. But, it's, but a good addiction is, is one that sets you free and becomes a, a way of expansion and a way of, of continuous uh, deepening. So, what we are actually doing in the process of meditation is giving ourself. This is why it's different from some more secularized forms of contemplative practice which are popular today, which are not so much about giving yourself, about, but about finding something for yourself. Now the message of the gospel is that by giving yourself, you actually do get a lot. In fact, you get the whole shebang, you get everything. If you become truly poor in spirit, you find yourself living in the kingdom of God in the fullness of life. So this giving yourself is not a negative thing, it's not a you know, masochistic, quite the reverse. It is the fullest love and respect for your human nature and destiny. So the laying aside of our thoughts is the way in which we can give ourselves. It just happens. We don't have to, I think, worry about what giving yourself means when you're meditating. Just do it and you'll find that that's what is happening. You can think about it afterwards, talk about it afterwards, but at the time of meditation, you don't have to reflect upon what you're doing. Because what you're doing is teaching you. Experience is the teacher. Magistra experientia, one of the great phrases of the desert uh, tradition. So when we enter into meditation, as we will now, to, to do this work, the work of silence, the work of attention, the work of laying aside our thoughts, we are, um, we are uh, giving ourselves and therefore entering into this poverty of spirit which makes us capable of receiving the ultimate gift of being. We are accepting the gift of our being, is how John Mayne put it. When we meditate, we accept the gift of our being. It's not passive because you have to accept it. But it's a gift. You can't turn it into a possession. 
and it is about being, not doing or having. So that simple phrase uh, contains, is packed with a lot of meaning. Now one more thing, of course, how do we do that? We do it in this tradition by taking a single word or a short phrase, uh, a, a word, a mantra, a sacred word, a prayer word. In Latin, they called it a formula. And we repeat this word continuously in the mind and heart during the time of meditation. Continuously. Why continuously? Because because we want to go the whole way. We want to get to the, we don't jump off the bus before the bus reaches the last stop. The purpose of saying the word is not only to calm the mind, is not only to achieve a certain sense of well-being or, or uh, calmness or peace, not only that. The ultimate purpose of the mantra is to lead us into this perfect, simple, but total gift of self, which opens us to the fullness of being. So choosing the word is important because we stay with the same word during the time of the meditation and from day to day, and this allows them, the word, the mantra, to sink into our heart day by day, month by month, year by year, till it becomes one of the greatest gifts of our life because it is continuously, as it becomes rooted in us, it, it, and through, through hard times and bad times and difficult times and times of loss and times of depression and times of sadness, as well as times of joy and celebration, it keeps us in touch with that, with that inner room, that, that tiny space in which the fullness of God is to be found. It becomes this very simple sacrament of the real presence of God in our hearts. That's why we say the word. That's why we call it a sacred word. That's why we don't sort of make jokes about the mantra or, or use the mantra as a way to call, call people to coffee. You know? uh, it's not because it's magic, but it's because it's, it's associated with that presence in the inner room. So, choosing the word is important. You could take the name Jesus or the word Abba, sacred words in our tradition. Um, but the word I, I would recommend is the word Maranatha. Maranatha is an Aramaic word. It's in the language that Jesus spoke. We find it in the New Testament in that form. And it was right from the beginning, a, an ancient prayer and a sacred word. And it's the sound of the word and the length of the word are also very helpful. It's because it's not in our own language, it means we, it doesn't immediately stimulate our thoughts and imagination. We can know that it means come Lord, therefore it could be used by anyone. But we're not automatically thinking about the meaning of it as we say it. Meditation is not what you think because we're laying aside our thoughts, even thoughts about God, or holy thoughts, or wise thoughts, or 
any insights that may come to you during meditation. You can be grateful for the insights and you can hope that you'll remember them after the meditation. But during the meditation, you let them go. Meditation is not about what you, so much about what you are trying to gain, but about the letting go. Now this is important to understand if you want to learn, and we are always learning because meditation is a discipline. If you want to learn to meditate and keep learning and keep going a little deeper every day, you need to remember that the meditation itself is the returning to the word. That's the act of faith. It's the returning to the word. So don't think, okay, I've got to say this word and I've got to blank out every thought and become like a, like a cloudless sky or like a blank sheet of paper and, uh, and, I, and I can't, therefore I'm failing. Well, yeah, you, you, you've, you've, you've set yourself an impossible goal. So you, you will always have a sense of failure. So why not approach it another way? more realistic way, without being so perfectionistic or idealistic. The purpose of the meditation in this way is to say the word faithfully. That means after you've been meditating for two minutes, you find that your mind is planning, analyzing, daydreaming all over the place. It's as if you're walking you know, through a jungle the jungle of your thoughts and feelings and memories. And, you know, sometimes being stuck in that jungle is, is terrifying. How do I get out of this jungle? And then you find a little path. You say, well, I don't quite know where this path is going to take me, but somebody must have been on it before. Uh, it's a path uh, through chaos, so let's follow this little path. That's the mantra. And you make the path by every step you take. But it's a path that's been trodden before you by many, many souls and, and people like yourself. The beautiful thing about this is that, of course, after a couple of moments, you will, get your, you, you will find yourself wandering off the path because it's a narrow little path. And so you, you know, sometimes it gets a bit blurred and you find yourself lost in the jungle again and then you're caught up in your thoughts and plans and worries. So what happens then? Well, maybe you're there for the next 20 minutes. But as soon as you realize that you have stopped walking on the path, stopped saying the mantra, and your mind is, uh, just has, has hijacked you, as soon as you realize that, you turn off your mobile phone. <laughs> and then you say, so this will be the first step on my path to enlightenment, is to turn off my mobile phone. So, uh, so you say to yourself, so what do I do now? Oh, I failed. I've wasted, I wasted the meditation. Oh, I'm not a good meditator. Well, that's all just a negative form of egotism, to be honest. And it's, it's just a waste of time to beat yourself up like that. So, be humble. 
and say, yeah, actually, I'm not a good meditator, but at least I'm trying. So as soon as you realize that you've stopped saying your word, just drop the thought. You may be, is that the phone or the birds? Birds? <laughs> God. So uh, as soon as you realize, you drop the, drop the thought, or you're, maybe you're, you're solving some problem. And you may, you may think, oh, I'm just, just getting to the solution to this problem. So you have to drop the solution, the solving, and drop the planning, drop the fantasizing, and just start saying your word again. The beauty of this, and it's a real experience of grace, if you want to know grace, say the mantra. Because, uh, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it just a bird, is it? Oh, good. Sometimes the, the, the uh, what you call those things, the, the, the sounds on the phones uh, that sound like a bird. So anyway, let's come back to this. So, uh, you are never more than one step away from the, from the path. You are not going to be punished for being distracted. You are not going to be disapproved of, except by yourself, except by your own ego. So your own ego may beat you up, but God isn't going to beat you up, and Holy Spirit isn't going to beat you up, and Jesus isn't going to beat you up, or make you feel bad and inadequate. That just comes from the ego. What we can do is have the humility to start again and keep on starting again. And every time we start again, we've taken another step on this little path between the, the mind and the heart. And the more steps we take, the more we come to realize that actually we're simply coming into where we are and who we are now. This isn't something we're projecting over into the next 20 years, this is now. But it takes some time of practice before we can understand that we are where we are going. We are where we are going. That's why we want to go there, because we are here and there. That's why Jesus says, you can't say, look, here it is or there it is, it's now. Okay, so, so this, is, this is the reason we say the mantra continuously, and this is how we can deal with our distractions, not by feeling failure or, or, or inadequate uh, about them, but just accepting that's how we are today, this moment, and yet we have a way to, to, to make progress. We have a way uh, forward, and that is to come back to the Word. So your meditation, if you want to define your meditation, it's returning to your Word. It's as simple as that. And there's a lot more we can say about it. It's a very deep and rich mystery that brings us to the source of being. But let's just start with that simple First step, meditation is returning to your word. Not saying it perfectly, but returning to it.
So let's meditate now. That was a long introduction, but maybe it says most of what I was going to say anyway. So take a, a moment to sit uh, upright with your back straight. Use these few minutes to blow your nose, clear, clear your throat. Good, lovely. And uh, I wonder how many mobile phones will go off between now and the end of the meditation. So during the meditation now we want to be as physically still as possible and the stillness of body will help to bring you to a stillness of mind. And that stillness is also the first step we take beyond desire, beyond just gratifying ourselves. So if you, if you can, uh, uh, sit as still as you can, physically. If you have to unwrap sweets, candy bars, open a bag of humbugs, whatever, try to do it now rather than in the middle of the meditation. Relax your shoulders and relax the muscles of your face. The physical aspect of meditation is a, a combination, really, of, um, of, still, of, of um, being relaxed, comfortable, and alert at the same time. So you're keeping your back straight, of course, is important, but relaxing your shoulders, putting your hands on your lap or on your knees. And close your eyes lightly. And then gently begin to say your word, your mantra, silently, gently without force, but faithfully. And the word I recommend again is Maranatha. Maranatha. Articulate the word clearly in your mind and listen to it as you say it. Say it simply without evaluating or judging yourself and humbly by returning to the word as you get distracted. So just to point us in this, in this into this work, we'll Take this, uh, begin with this opening prayer by John Main. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to the silent presence of the Spirit of your Son. Lead us into that mysterious silence where your love is revealed to all who call. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha.
This is from uh, Julian of Norwich. By myself, I am nothing at all. But in general, I am in the wanting of love. For it is in this wanting that the life of all people exists. So we have been doing this work of wanting. It's an idea or word that uh, we find, especially in the English mystics of the 14th century, Cloud of Unknowing, and the uh, work of Julian, Mother Julian of Norwich. And it's a beautiful uh, concept, really, one that helps us to understand this mystery of unity, the mystery of our uniqueness, the state of being one. And this truth of oneness is at the heart of all truly religious insight, religious wisdom. It's really the essence of religion. The word itself, religion, of course, means to relink, which is another way of saying to one, if we use the word one as a verb, to, to one what has been broken or divided, fragmented. And we all come to this work of oneing with our personal history of separation, of the losses of life, and the varied ways in which we come to feel fragmented or divided. There's a paradox, of course, as there always is, in wisdom and in truth. There's a paradox in this word or this idea of oneness. And we, we can see it in the word individual. When we think of an individual today, it means each of these are individual chairs, and there's one individual person with their own social security number and their own telephone number and their own mobile phone that they can't turn off, uh, <laughs> sitting in each of these chairs. So we are individuals. But the word individual, individuous, originally meant the opposite of that, that we normally think it to mean today, individuals. It meant undivided, individuous, undivided. Now, there's a truth, of course, we are sitting on these individual chairs and we each have our own particular 
destiny in life and our own particular <coughs> compound of problems and, and joys. And we come into this world individually and we leave this world individually. And we meditate in a sense individually because I can't meditate for you, although we can meditate together. These are not transferable assets or transferable items or passages, rites of passage that we have to go through um, in our uniqueness. And I think to understand this paradox of individualism, which has become very one-sided in our culture, where we speak about human rights as if they mean just individual rights, and we conceptualize ourselves as consumers, individual consumers, with consumer rights and so on. The idea of being a consumer is very different from being a citizen. So in order to try to understand this paradox and get a sense of what one oneing means and unity really means, I think we need this this revelation or this understanding of uniqueness. That each of us comes into being, exists out of being, being and existence are a little different. Being is that ground in which everything is. Ground of being. Nothing exists that doesn't have being, that comes out of being. And so this is our, this is the mystery of God or ultimate reality. That source in which, which is full of infinite and unimaginable potential for new manifestations of itself. This is what God is up to all the time, reinventing, recreating, producing, crea endlessly creative. And human creativity, all the different forms by which we, we share in that divine quality of creation, uh, are wonderful. They give us a sense of, of, of fulfillment, a sense of uh, transcendence, creativity in whatever form we may find ourselves exercising it. Uh, creativity is our sharing in the divine ground of being and bringing something new into existence. It's not 100% new because we are creatures, so we have to work with the material that we've got already. But nevertheless, the work of creation is a, is a, is a real human uh, asset and human gift talk and realizing these gifts and exercising these gifts whatever they are whether it's raising a family or discovering a new a new galaxy uh, or a new formula for physics or writing uh, Hamlet 
whatever form of creativity we may uh, have, each one of us shares in this capacity to, to bring into existence that means something that can be seen and, and touched and, and shared, something that's out there, exist, comes out of existing, it comes out of this ground of being. And so every one of us needs to experience our own creativity, our own capacity to share in, the, in our own creation to know ourselves to be created in the image and likeness of the Creator. And if you feel, well, that sounds nice, but I'm not a very creative person, I'm just a consumer, I'm just an ordinary kind of person, bit of a slob, really, you know, haven't got much to distinguish me from anybody else. Well, you can settle down into that rather low level of self-rejection, uh, or you can meditate. And if you meditate, it won't be long before that image of yourself, which is also a kind of a, a product of our destructive consumerism, that image of yourself will begin to change that sense of self. Because in meditation we are doing an essentially creative work. Creative because we are, we are re responding to the call and to our capacity to approach the source of our being and to be one with that source. And to know that it is that in that little source of our being, in our heart, there is that tiny space. We're only a little speck of dust, that's true. And in a, you know, well, let's say a hundred years, each of us will have been pretty much obliterated from human memory. Maybe there'll be a few digital files that can still be read by the new computer system, so we may still exist somewhere. But we are these little specks of dust which are, you know, passing through, through the, cosmic, uh, the cosmic explosion. But nevertheless, in each one of us, as a little piece of cosmic dust, there is the whole universe and the, the, the creative source of that universe is one with us. And in meditation, we cannot meditate without beginning to, to, to gain or regain a sense of our own value, a sense of our own wonder, a sense of our own worth, to revalue ourselves, to be aware of our real worth, not the the, not the label of value or the monetary value or the educational value or the status value or the how good looking you are kind of value that we, that we put on ourselves and put on other people. There's a whole re-evaluation of ourselves.
that takes place in this work of oneing, this work of, of meditation. And it's in this work that we truly come to see and know ourselves in our uniqueness. And this is central, a central insight of our own Christian faith. The uniqueness of the, of the human being, each one of us having the same value, and that same value and worth is the value of the one who, who the ground of being from whom we have existed, from whom we have sprung into existence. This is why we dangerously undervalue Christian faith when we fail to see that it is a Trinitarian faith. And most Christians are really not Trinitarians, they're her heretics really. We're, we're Arians um, who don't really operate on this model of God as this communion of being, not a monolithic singul singularity point, but the ground of being, which is communion, a communion of love. Most Christian denominations uh, accept the theology or theological model of the Trinity, take it as their foundational belief. But it doesn't, it isn't really expressed, I think, in the life and the values of, Christ, of Christians in general. We don't really understand or act as if this unity, this oneness of God, that is, you know, the, the oneness of God, is a communion. And it's a paradox, three in one. Doesn't make sense. It's easier not to think about it, just to think of God as Mr. God, or Uncle God, or, or Grandpa God. But I think meditation makes theologians of us all. As teachers used to say, a theologian is somebody who prays, and somebody who prays is a theologian. Don't mean you have to do a master's degree in theology. I mean that you seriously begin to relate these symbols and beliefs of your faith to your own experience, and your own experience begins to inform these beliefs and fill them with a sense of relevance and wonder and something that makes a difference to you because it gives you a new way of seeing the world and experiencing the challenges and the mysteries of life. It's relevant, it's meaningful. I was once 
with a group of uh, children in, in a class. And we meditated, I rang the bell uh, three times, and I said, uh, anyone got any questions? And somebody, one of the children said, why do you ring the bell three times? Very profound question. <laughs> they always ask these kind of questions. Another question once was, who invented meditation? <laughs> so, uh, why do you ring the bell three times? Before I could find the words to answer it, the boy, little boy sitting next to her said, it's the Trinity, stupid. <laughs> so, I'll leave you to ponder on that over your tea, and we'll come back. <laughs> <laughs>